What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Primetime Sports Podcast, hosted by Joey Mayolari. I hope all of you had a great July 4th weekend, and hope all of you guys had a great, relaxing, long weekend. Uh, the weather was really nice for most of it, so hope you guys got to go out and enjoy it. Um, today, I'm going to be breaking down some of what has been happening within the NBA since the start of free agency, including the Celtics training from Malcolm Brogdon, uh, and where the Nets stand uh, currently within uh, the Kyrie Irving and, D- and Kevin Durant saga. Um, after talking about the NBA, I'm going to be uh, finishing up by talking about the Red Sox and some of uh, their biggest players and how they've been performing um, as of late in their struggles, um, such as Andy Bogats and J.D. Martinez. I'm going to save some of what I was going to talk about today of what's going on within the NBA uh, and talk about it tomorrow. So today I'm just going to probably primarily focus on the Celtics, what's going on there, then Kevin Durant, and then also Rudy Gobert's trade to the Minnesota Timberwolves. Um, so anyways, to start things off, Danilo Gallinari, who was bought out by the Spurs after being part of the DeJounte Murray trade uh, that sent the star point guard to the Atlanta Hawks, um, he agreed to a two-year uh, $13 million taxpayer mid-level uh, exception deal with the Celtics. Uh, he's coming off a, a good season with Atlanta. Um, not his best, but a very good year um, efficiency-wise. Shot uh, 38.1% from three, 43.4% from the field, 90.4% from the line, uh, 11.7 uh, points per game to go along with 4.7 rebounds and 1.5 assists. Uh, in his 13-year career, the Italian forward averaged... Uh, 15.6 points per game, 4.8 rebounds per game, 38.2% shooter from three, 87.7% free throw shooter, and a career 42.8% field goal uh, percentage. So he's coming in and giving the Celtics a lot of a lot of veteran leadership off the bench and a lot of scoring. That's what the Celtics really needed. Uh, he was a 90.4% free throw shooter this past season, uh, which, which was good enough to be fifth in the NBA. So that's a huge add uh, for a Celtics team who only shot 40, who shot 74.8% from the free throw line in the NBA Finals. Um, and then you look at it in the 2019-2020 season, he was a 92.5% free throw shooter. So he really has been such a great free throw shooter over his entire career. And the Celtics really struggled with not only scoring in the NBA Finals from the bench and then free throw shooting. Uh, and then also turnovers were a big issue for the Celtics. And that's something he can come in and help the Celtics with. If you look at it, he has a career 1.2 turnovers per game uh, average. Uh, in his two seasons with Atlanta, um, so these past two years, he averaged only 0.7 turnovers per game. So less than a turnover per game in 117 games and averaged 24.7 minutes per game. So it's not like he's sitting on the bench the whole game and is coming in for a minute and not turning the ball over. He played just about half of the game, every single game, you know, 24.7 minutes is is just about half of 48 minutes. So half the game in his 117 games with Atlanta and averaged less than a turn, one turnover per game, 0.7 turnovers per game. So that's going to be a really big help for the Celtics. Um, all in all, he had the second best turnover percentage in the NBA this past year, turning the ball over just 5.4%. Um, of every 100 plays um, on average. Uh, so he's not only going to help the Celtics uh, and provide them you know, a lot of depth on the bench, he's going to help them with ball control, shooting from the three, free throw shooting, 
all of which the Celtics really desperately needed in the NBA Finals. And that's something that I mentioned before uh, in one of my last episodes, that the Celtics really could have used more depth off the bench. And he was a great add by Brad Stevens, a huge pickup for the Celtics. And I think he's going to play a big role for them this upcoming season. Uh, and he also only got the taxpayer mid-level exception. So it's just two years, $13 million, six and a half million just about per year. So that's a very good deal for the Celtics. Saves them money. And then also he wanted to come to Boston after being bought out. Uh, by San Antonio uh, after being traded from Atlanta to San Antonio in that DeJounte Murray deal. He chose to come to the Celtics, so he wanted to be here, and that's a big ad for the Celtics. So very big pickup by Brad Stevens. Uh, Another big uh, news piece within the Celtics organization is the Celtics traded former 2020 first-round pick, uh, 14th overall selection in the 2020 draft, Aaron Neesmith, Daniel Tice, and a 2023 first-round pick for Pacers star point guard Malcolm Brogdon. Uh, Boston also sent Nick Stauskas, Jawan Morgan, and Malik Fitz uh, as well to Indiana to even out the money in the deal. Um, I'll stop by saying this. I absolutely love this trade for the Celtics. I think it probably is, in my opinion, the best offseason move by any GM in, uh, of any team so far um, within the first week of free agency in the NBA. Um, Brad Stevens literally stole Brogdon, if you look at it. He only gave up, uh, obviously, a first-round pick. I know people value that. Uh, more than they probably should, since in the NBA, first-round picks aren't uh, as heavily valued as they are in, let's say, uh, the NFL. But if you look at it, a first-round pick with Aaron D. Smith and Daniel Tice to get a star point guard like Malcolm Brogdon, something the Celtics have desperately needed, a point guard that can actually facilitate uh, and help calm down the team. You know, they have a, The Celtics have been struggling with turnovers now for you know the last season or two, and they really haven't had a true point guard that's been healthy, at least. You know, Kemba Walker was hurt a ton. Obviously, Dennis Schroeder didn't work out and was traded. But they really haven't had a true point guard uh, that could help the team with ball control and calm them down in situations where they're very likely to turn the ball over. And we know Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, very turnover-prone players. Um, so I think Malcolm Brogdon is a big piece, big ad for the Celtics team. If you look at it, as I said, they only gave up a first-round pick. Uh, the Nick Stauskas, Jawan Morgan... And Malik Fitz, part of the deal, really was just to even out the money. So uh, it wasn't like we're trading rotation plays there. But it was really just Daniel Tice, a 2023 first-round pick, and Aaron Neesmith. And uh, and let's start with this. Aaron Neesmith, he appeared in 98 games for the Celtics, had four starts, averaged 12.7 minutes per game, 31.8% shooter from three, 4.2 points per game to go along with 2.2 rebounds and half a, half of an assist per game. So he didn't really help the Celtics out too much in the minutes he played. His minutes did go down this year to 11 minutes per game, uh, and he averaged 3.8 points per game in those uh, 11 minutes on average. And here's the thing about Neesmith. I mean, he's only 22 years old, so I'm sure he could develop into a better player, but it wasn't going to be with the Celtics, especially a team that's trying to win now. And he wouldn't have had a spot in the rotation. The Celtics don't have time to waste and put in a guy that they're just trying to develop and give you know an extra year or two to develop a shot to help him with his defense. The Celtics need a win now, and it's a good position for Aaron Eastman to be in now, being in Indiana, where they're in a huge rebuild, it looks like. I mean, Miles Turner will probably be next, uh, the next person to be traded by them. They're in a huge rebuild. He's going to get his chance to shine and actually be able to take shots in big moments, probably. I'd imagine he'll be you know sixth, seventh man off the bench. So he's going to play a key role for Indiana this year. A team that's young, basically trying to lose games. You know, if you're giving up a guy like Brogdon, probably trading Miles Turner, and they traded DeMontis Sabonis uh, last year at the trade deadline uh, from Sacramento. They did land um, Tyrese Halliburton, who's a great player, but uh, it seems like they're a team that's, you know, going to tank for the next year or two and rebuild. 
So he's going to get himself some minutes now in Indiana, minutes he was not going to get in the Celtics, especially considering he played nothing in the playoffs really at all. So, as I said, only 22 years old, he could develop into uh, a little bit more of a role player um, rather than just being, you know, a five to ten minutes per night in, in, in garbage time when the game's over. But um, I was always a fan of Neesmith. I think he's a good player, um, but it just wasn't going to work on the Celtics. I wish him the best, um, especially shooting-wise. I mean, he was a great shooter in college and then just didn't pan out to be that same exact shooter with the Celtics, only shooting 31.8% from three. So uh, wishing Neesmith uh, nothing but the best. Then you look at Daniel Tice. Um, he's under contract for each of the next three seasons uh, with a team option uh, in the fourth year um, of his deal. He's getting around $9 million per year, so uh, nine more million dollars than the Celtics wanted to give him, clearly, uh, especially since they added him in that deal. Um, he fell out of the rotation, though, every single time Robert Williams was healthy, um, and that was the thing. He never really played unless Robert Williams was out or, or Al Horford um, needed a breather. He was reacquired by the Celtics. Um, from Houston at the trade deadline uh, in February, uh, part of that Dennis Schroeder trade. In 21 games this year for the Celtics, Tice averaged 7.9 points per game, 4.7 rebounds, 35.7% shooter from three, 59.8% shooter from the field. Um, he has made himself uh, a solid NBA career. Um, this is the sixth NBA season he's going into. Uh, the German said is 30 years old, um, and hopefully he'll get more minutes on a team like the Pacers, a Pacers team that's probably trying to tank uh, for this next upcoming season. If you look at it, I'm sure Miles Turner will be the next guy to be moved, and they just traded Brogs, as I said, to the Celtics. So uh, maybe he'll get more minutes. Tice uh, on the paces. He just wasn't going to have a role in the Celtics this upcoming season. Neither was Neesmith. Neither one of the, these two guys, the two main pieces of this deal with that first-round pick, were going to have a role in this Celtics team, especially in crunch time. If you look at it, Neesmith didn't play at all in the NBA playoffs, and then Tice really only played when Rob Williams was out. When Robert Williams was healthy and ready to go, Tice wasn't in the game. And he was only in if, let's say, Al Horford needed a breather or Robert Williams needed a breather. But he wasn't going to have a role for this Celtics team in this upcoming season. So very good deal for the Celtics there. And then you look at the other three guys the Celtics traded. Malik Fitz, Jawan Morgan, Nick Stauskas. They played a combined 15 games for the Celtics this season uh, with an average of about three to four minutes per game. Uh, and all of those coming in garbage time typically. Um, Fitz and Morgan... Both of those guys are 25 years old. Stauskas, the former 8th overall pick in the 2014 NBA draft by Sacramento. Uh, he's 28 years old. Uh, Fitz and Morgan, I'm sure they'll probably be on the G League team and maybe make their uh, way back up to the NBA roster um, if there's an injury. Um, but they, they, they'll be able to develop uh, probably in Indiana's G League uh, system and then maybe make their way up uh, and get a couple minutes off the bench. Uh, and then Stauskas, I'm not sure what's going to happen there. He'll probably end up being bought out. Um, he's not really making much money anyways, but I don't see him being um, part of their future unless, you know, they're trying to uh, just have a veteran in the locker room uh, that's played in the NBA, you know, for seven, eight years. But if you look at it, Brogdon is the true point guy the Celtics needed, um, and they didn't really have to give up much to get him. Three guys that only played in garbage time for a combined 15 games. Aaron Neesmith, who went down in minutes this year, only played 11 minutes per game and averaged 3.8 points per game off the bench. And then also Daniel Tice, a backup center that wasn't going to get minutes at all unless Robert Williams is hurt or Al Horford needed a breather, as I said. So you gave up three pieces that don't play off the bench unless it's garbage time. Aaron Neesmith, who will play minutes in the regular season, you know, 10 minutes a game, uh, but won't play in the NBA playoffs because, you know, he's too much of a liability out there since he really wasn't the scorer he was at uh, Vanderbilt. And then Aaron, uh, excuse me, Daniel Tice, who wasn't going to get any minutes unless there was an injury. So... 
You traded five guys there that weren't part of the Celtics' future and weren't going to play any key minutes this year and this upcoming season for the Celtics and a first-round pick to land Malcolm Brogdon, a true point guard that the Celtics have desperately needed and, and another scorer as well, both of which the Celtics desperately lacked and needed as seen by everyone who watched the NBA Finals and the playoffs of the Celtics, they needed another score off the bench and a point guard. And you had a guy like Malcolm Brogdon, who's had a great six-year career in the NBA. Um, he was the 2017 Rookie of the Year, career 15.5-point score per game, 4.2 rebounds, 4.8 assists, just under a steal per game, per game at .9 steals per game, 37.6% shooter from three, 46.4% uh, shooter from the field, and 88.1% shooter from the free-throw line. Uh, he was acquired by Indiana in a signing trade um, for uh, uh, with the Milwaukee Bucks for a four-year, eighty-five million dollar contract in July of twenty nineteen. Um, last year with the Pacers, he did battle um, some injuries. He played in thirty-six games, averaged nineteen point one points per game, five point one rebounds, five point nine assists, shot forty-four point eight percent from the field, eighty-five point six percent from the free throw line. Um, did have a career low in three-point percentage, thirty-one point two percent from the three-point line. Uh, but he did miss a ton of games and battled um, a ton to try to stay healthy. He had an Achilles injury, a hamstring injury, and then also an AC joint injury in his shoulder. So he wasn't really healthy uh, for much of the season as all, at all. He missed 46 games. So um, if you look at it, though, the future of his contract is huge for the Celtics team. It's not like he's making 35 a year and the Celtics you know, just took on a big cap hit. The next four seasons, he's making $21.7 million, $22.6 million, $21.6 million, and $23.3 million in each of the next three years. So he's not making a lot of money and is addressing needs that this Celtics team had. It was it was glaring. Everyone knew that watching NBA Finals and watching playoffs, the Celtics needed bench depth. They needed more scoring. They needed someone that's not going to turn the ball over. And Malcolm Brogdon is helping you with the ball control, which he turns the ball over a little himself. But now you have a true point guard that's going to help you in crunch time and will break a press and will not turn the ball over with a bad pass like the Celtics have been so prone to doing. If you watch Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, their ability to pass the ball in crunch time is just so careless. Now you have a point guard that can slow the game down. You have another guy that can score, so it just doesn't have to be Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum every play. Then you have a free throw shooter, which the Celtics needed a great free throw shooter in that starting lineup. And they have that now. Brogdon's in the starting lineup, or he's off the bench. Either way, I'm sure he's going to be playing in crunch time, whether he starts or doesn't. He's going to be you know, in the game with two minutes to go in the fourth quarter, the Celtics down two, the Celtics up two. He'll always be in the game in those moments. You have a great free throw shooter. Now you have a true point guard. And I'm going to break, down, I'm break it down even more. You address bench scoring, bench depth, with the addition of Brogdon and Gallinari, whether it's Marcus Smart or Malcolm Brogdon starting, your bench immediately becomes better because one of them's going to be on the bench and they both are good enough to be starting. So your bench is much stronger than it was before and obviously everyone knows that, especially if the Celtics' NBA Finals odds are going up. And that's because they gave up nothing to get Malcolm Brogdon. Three players, Fitz, Morgan, Stauskas, who only played in garbage time with a minute to go if they ever did play, 15 games combined between the three of them. So three guys that had no future with the Celtics you trade Aaron Neesmith, who only played 10 minutes per game or 11 minutes per game in the regular season, but got no minutes in the NBA playoffs and the NBA finals because he was a liability out there. He couldn't shoot. He couldn't hit the threes like he was in college. And then Daniel Tyson was no value unless Robert Williams is hurt or Aaron or Al Horford needs a breather. So you traded five guys on a first-round pick and landed a star point guard like Malcolm Brogdon. Of course your odds to win the NBA finals are going to go up. 
and rightfully so. He's such a good play. He's a great, great addition. You gave up nothing to get him. And Brogdon's more of a combo god, so he can help you bring the ball up and help facilitate and, and, and find, you know, the open player. But he's also a shooter, so he's not a true point god, but he's a combo god, so he can do both. Be a point god and a shooting god. He's kind of a mix. But Brad Stevens, by addressing huge needs in bench scoring a bench depth with these two additions in Brogdon and Gallinari, are two huge solutions. Everyone knew, watching Game 5 and Game 6 of the NBA Finals, that the Celtics had no bench scoring or bench depth. None. The Celtics had no depth. Derek White, Grant Williams, and Peyton Pritchard could not help you at all. They couldn't cut it. They were a liability on both ends of the floor, and most importantly, they gave you no help offensively, which they were doing in, earlier in the NBA Finals, and that if you look at it in the Milwaukee series and Miami Heat series, the Celtics had 10 bench points in Game 5. Six of those 10 bench points came in the last minute of the game from Luke Cornett and Aaron Neesmith. And only four bench points in Game 6. Game 5, they had 10 bench points, and I just said six of those points came in the last minute of the game from Luke Cornett and Aaron Smith. So take away those six points in the last minute of garbage time when both teams gave up. The Celtics had four bench points in Game 5, and then four bench points in Game 6. Grant Williams and Derek White could not be on the floor. And that forced Ime Odoka to keep the starters in the game for just about the whole thing, which he, which he shouldn't have had to. You should have better depth on the bench, guys you can trust. And the Celtics didn't have that. White shot 32.7% from the field in the NBA Finals. And his last two games was 1 for 10 from the floor, 0 of 5 from 3, 5 rebounds, 1 assist, 0 steals. So he wasn't helping you scoring-wise, going 1 for 10 from the floor and 0 of 5 from 3. Wasn't helping you defensively with no steals. And he wasn't helping you playmaking-wise with 0 or 1 assist in the last two games. Then you look at Grant Williams. In his last three NBA Finals games, he averaged three points from three points per game, 50% shooting from the floor, 1.7 rebounds, zero steals, and one block per game. He had three blocks in the last three games. So he finished within his last three games a stat line of nine points, five rebounds, and three blocks. Didn't help you at all in the offensive end, nine points in three games. Shooting 50% from the floor. Didn't help you at all really defensively. I know he had the three blocks, but... Rebounds-wise, only 1.7 rebounds in the last three games for a total of five rebounds in his last three NBA Finals games. That's not helping you at, at all. And he wasn't helping you much on the offensive end. As I just said, three points per game. He was giving you some points in the Milwaukee series and Miami Heat series. He'd get hot every now and then hit a couple threes. But out in the last three games of the NBA Finals, Derek White and Grant Williams, there's no other way to say it, they could not help you in any way, shape, or form in games five or game six of the NBA Finals. They couldn't help you. And the Warriors knew that. The Celtics knew that. The Celtics needed more scoring and needed more bench depth. And that's what these two additions, Brogdon and Gallinari, are. And who knows who's going to start between Brogdon and, and Marcus Smart. But I'll tell you this. Immediately, no matter who starts between the two of them, your bench becomes better automatically. And is a lot stronger than it was in the NBA Finals and was before the NBA Finals. No matter who started between the two of them, one of them is going to be on your bench and both of them are qualified to be a starting point guard. As I said... Brogdon's more of a combo guard, but he's more of a true point guard than Marcus Smart is, in my opinion. Very similar players. Neither one are going to be a floor general like Chris Paul. But I think Brogdon's a better addition to the Celtics starting lineup than Marcus Smart is at the point guard position. Although Marcus Smart didn't play bad at all. He actually played well in the NBA Finals. But if you look at it, no matter who starts between the two of them, your Celtics bench is automatically better than it was. Both Smart and Brogdon are more than qualified enough to be a starting point guard on any team. 
Most teams. What these two additions, though, on Brogdon and Gallinari do is strengthen not only a ton of benching or bench depth, but also free throw shooting. And to me, that's a big thing. If you look at it, Jason Tatum, who most people would say is the Celtics' best player, to me, I think Jalen Brown's better. If I had to pick between the two of them, I'm picking Jalen Brown. I think he's better personally. But that's besides the point. Jason Tatum shot 21 of 32 from the free throw line in the NBA Finals, had a 65.6% free throw percentage. The Celtics needed better scorers from the free throw line, and that's what they added. Gallinari and Brogdon will help you heavily in that area of free throw shooting. I think Brad Stevens knew that. Everyone knew the Celtics couldn't shoot free throws. We were crying for every call on them to get to the line and not hit them. Gallinari and Brogdon having great career free throw shooters. As a matter of fact, which I did a ton of this research and I gathered a ton of information about where they were in the NBA this past season, historically, among active players I looked at for Gallinari because he's a very good career free throw shooter. He's actually... Very high among active players in career free throw percentage. But we'll start with Brogdon. Was first in the NBA in free throw percentage in the 2018-2019 season with a 92.8% free throw percentage. He has a career 88.1% free throw percentage and shot 85.6% from the free throw in this past season in Indiana. And then you look at Gallinari. It's even more impressive. He's sixth among active players in career free throw percentage with an 87.7% free throw percentage which is very impressive. Sixth. Sixth among active players. Had a 90.4% free throw percentage this past season. He's 21st in NBA history with a career 87.7% free throw percentage. So sixth among active players and 21st in NBA history. And then in NBA playoff history, which we know, as I said, Jason Tatum could not hit a free throw for the life of him in the NBA Finals, 21 of 32. Gallinari is seventh in NBA playoff history with a 90.1% free throw percentage in the NBA playoffs. Compare that to Jason Tatum shooting 65% from the free throw line in the NBA Finals. That's a huge difference. Huge difference. So the Celtics address not only more scoring depth, they need more scorers, they need more bench depth, they need more bench scoring. That's what they got with these two additions. They also got free throw shooting. And let's look at the scoring depth. The Celtics added two more scorers that they desperately needed. Malcolm Brogdon averaged 19.1 points per game this past season. Gallinari, 11.7 points per game this past season for Atlanta. And I'm going to list a few other statistics that I found when I was researching how Gallinari compares to the rest of active players and historically in offensive rating. I did a ton of this research uh, to prove to you how important these two additions are to the Celtics team. Gallinari's eighth among active players in career offensive rating with a 118.91 rating. He's 15th in the history of the NBA with a 118.91 offensive rating. So 8th among active players in career offensive rating and 15th in NBA history. Then you look at turnovers, which the Celtics, as I talked about, they, they, they couldn't stop turning the ball over. Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, they were automatic turnovers in the NBA Finals. Danilo Gallinari averaged 0.6 turnovers per game this past season with Atlanta. So less than one turnover per game, just about half a turnover every game. So that's one turnover every two games just about. And then also... He's fifth among active players in turnover percentage with an 8.46 turnover percentage per 100 plays. He had the second best turnover percentage in the NBA this past season, in the 2021-2022 NBA season, turning the ball over just 5.4% of every 100 plays. Danilo Gallinari is a huge addition to the Celtics team, not only for scoring, not only for three-point shooting and scoring off the bench, but free throw percentage, Shooting free throws in clutch situations in crunch time. He, as I said, he was 7th 
among active players, seventh in NBA playoff history in career free throw percentage, and then a sixth among active players in career free throw percentage. So he's seventh in playoff history with a 90.1% free throw percentage, and then he's sixth among active players in career free throw percentage with an 87.7% free throw percentage. And then you look at his turnovers. Had the second lowest turnover percentage in the NBA this past season. He's helping you scoring-wise, shooting-wise, free throw shooting-wise, and with turnovers. And Brogdon adds you another scorer and a playmaker. Combo guard, he's going to help you a ton on the offensive end. And also will help you shooting-wise at the free throw line and with turnovers. Huge additions, both of those pickups by, by Brad Stevens. And as I said, you gave up really nothing to get him. Nothing you gave up to get Brogdon. Danilo Gallinari signed with the taxpayer mid-level exception. Two years, $13 million. And then for Brogdon, you gave up Fitz, Morgan, and Stoskis, three guys that are never going to play, that don't have a future with the Celtics. You gave up Aaron Neesmith, who struggled to get minutes at all, even in the regular season, 11 minutes per game. And a lot of it you know, came in, in the middle of the game. He'd never be playing in crunch time, typically. And didn't play at all. He fell completely out of the rotation in the NBA playoffs and the NBA finals because you couldn't trust him out there. And then also Daniel Tice, who has no role on the Celtics unless Robert Williams is hurt or Al Horford needs a breather. So five pieces that don't really have any role for this Celtics team, a team that's contending and trying to win the NBA Finals, would have no role this upcoming season in a first-round pick. And you added Malcolm Brogdon. That's a hell of a deal. What a move by Brad Stevens. Anyways, now I'm going to move on to the Kevin Durant-Kyrie, uh, Irving, Saga, and Brooklyn and what's going on there. Uh, the Wolves supposedly want to get Kevin Durant over the weekend, uh, but they did not want to split ways with Anthony Edwards or Kyle Anthony Towns. Um, and rightfully so, I wouldn't want to trade either one of those two guys. Um, there's no way you can honestly get Kevin Durant without giving up one of those two guys. So if you had to pick one of them, I would not I would just keep Edwards and Cat together because I think Minnesota has a great young core now. And there's no way of getting Kevin Durant without giving him up. So at the end of the day, I think the Wolves did the right move. They also traded for Rudy Gobert, which I'm going to get into uh, in my episode tomorrow. Um, but supposedly the Nets' asking price, according to ESPN's Mark Spears for Kevin Durant, is they want a younger future all-star, lots of picks, the ability to swap picks, and another starter. And that's pretty much in line with a couple of my proposals that I gave my last episode of what a realistic trade would look like for Kevin Durant. I said it would probably be Marcus Smart, Jalen Brown, Probably Robert Williams and two first-round picks, or maybe three first-round picks, whatever it be. It might, that might seem like a lot. Who knows? But I know if you're getting a player like Kevin Durant, the Nets are going to want a ton in return. You're not going to get Kevin Durant for free, and that's a reality of the situation. According to Sham Serenia, who covers the NBA for The Athletic, the Nets are making moves in free agency with the idea that there is a possibility that Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving will both be on the starting roster for this upcoming season on opening night. Now, if they could be on the Nets starting roster on opening night, it, it would be absolutely nuts. This team is an absolute roller coaster. A roller coaster that doesn't stop. It just keeps going. You don't know where it's going. Turns right, turns left, goes up, goes down. No one knows what's going on in Brooklyn. No one knows what the future looks like in Brooklyn. What are the chances they run it back? Now, man, Kendrick Perkins say yesterday, he thinks Kevin Durant's trade request is just a ploy to try to get Kyrie Irving more money. Who knows what's going to happen in Brooklyn? Imagine they were to run it back. Supposedly, over the last day or so, there's no traction between a trade for Kevin Durant or a trade for Kyrie Irving. So there's no traction towards a trade for either one of those guys. 
supposedly the Lakers were trying to make a run at Kyrie Irving, which I'm sure everyone knows because LeBron and Kyrie former teammates. The Lakers are desperate, supposedly according to reports, and want to move Russell Westbrook for Kyrie Irving. But their main issue is that the front office, the Lakers front office, does not want to send multiple first-round picks to make that happen, to get rid of Russ's expiring one-year contract. Kyrie Irving's also on an expiring contract with one year left after he opted into his last year of his contract with Brooklyn. And I've said this many times, I don't think Westbrook is the reason to blame for what happened in, in L.A. this past season. He had 10 triple-doubles this past season. Compare it to last season, so in the 2021-2022 NBA season this past year, he had 10 triple-doubles. In the 2020-2021 NBA season with the Washington Wizards, he had 38. Russ was not allowed to do what he does best, which is play confidently. And people say, oh, what he does best is stat pad. No, it's play confidently. He was criticized way too much, and he could never take a shot without the fear of, oh, if I miss this, everyone's going to be posted everywhere on Instagram and Twitter and talk about an ESPN tomorrow morning. Every shot Russell Westbrook missed was publicized. He couldn't play the game confidently. He couldn't play without all the criticism and the backlash. So I hope Russell Westbrook gets a new home and has somewhere else to play. So he's not the scapegoat for what happened in the, in the Lakers organization this past year. He's not the problem, in my opinion. Now I'm going to move on to Rudy Gobert. The star center was traded from the Utah Jazz to the Minnesota Timberwolves for an absolute blockbuster uh, return. Three unprotected first-round picks in 2023 and 2025 and 2027. So three unprotected firsts, 2023, 2025, and 2027. A 2029 top five protected first-round pick. A 2026 uh, pick swap, along with Walker Kessler, who is the number 22 overall pick in this year's draft. Malik Beasley, Jared Vanderbilt, Leandro Balmero, and Patrick Beverly. So Gobert, three-time defensive player of the year, three-time All-Star, six-time first-team all-defensive team selection in the NBA, uh, and four-time All-NBA. Gobert's coming off a career-best uh, in league-leading season with a 14.7 rebounds per game average. And he's also coming off a career-high in league-leading field goal percentage at 71.3% from the floor. Two straight years he has led the NBA at field goal percentage. And he came off, coming off this season, 15.6 points per game, 14.7 rebounds per game, 2.1 blocks, which was third in the NBA, and 0.7 steals per game. I think Rudy Gobert, I think he's a huge addition to this Minnesota Timberwolves team. And I know he gets a lot of backlash. But if you look at what they gave up, ton of first-round picks, ton of players, it shows this Minnesota Timberwolves team is going all-in. And I respect that. Rudy Gobert is not a bad player whatsoever. I know he gets a lot of backlash, and people say he's soft, and he's not that great, overrated, kind of like Colin Anthony Towns. People aren't too big fans of either one of those guys. I like both of them. But an interesting stat I found in my research, when I was comparing rebound percentage among players in the NBA, Rudy Gobert was number one in total rebound percentage in the NBA this past season, grabbing 25% of available rebounds when he's on the floor and was number one in defensive rebounding percentage at 36.3%. So he rebounded 36.3% of rebounds, potential defensive rebounds, when he was on the floor. I think Gobert gets too much criticism. And I think he's a great player. As I said, I, I think him and Conley Towns both get too much criticism. He was second in offensive rating this past season with a 137.4 rating. And he's number one among active players with a career 127.43 offensive rating. He had the second best defensive rating in the NBA this past season at a, with a 103.2 rating. 
He was number one in true shooting percentage with a 73.2% field goal percentage, was number one in effective field goal percentage, shooting 71.3% from the floor. If you look at these statistics, he's been great offensively and great defensively. And I'm just going to run over them again just so people know how good he is and how he gets too much criticism. He was number one in total rebound percentage in the NBA this past season. He's number one among active players with a 127.43 offensive rating. He had the number two offensive rating in all of the NBA last year with a 137.4 rating. He second, was second this past season in defensive rating with a 103.2 rating. Number one in true shooting percentage. Number one in effective field goal percentage. And is third among active players with a 100.63 career defensive rating. So he's been great offensively and great defensively, not only this past season, but statistically his whole career. I think Rudy Gobert is a hell of a player. I think he's a huge pickup. For this Wolves team. And as I said, I completely respect them going all in. I really like the Colin Lee Towns Rudy Gobert duo. Probably a lot more than most people. I think they'll be dominating the glass. And I think Cat will become a better player with Gobert on his, on his right side. Or his left side. With Gobert helping him defend in the paint. Cat's responsibilities completely go down. He doesn't have to carry the paint. He doesn't have to be the anchor down there. As much as he had to be this past year and the past few years in Minnesota. Now he has help in the paint. Rudy Gobert who is... So great defensively and offensively, according to offensive and defensive rating in the NBA. And also the league uh, leading rebound in rebounds per game. Colin Anthony Towns is only going to become better this year. The Minnesota Timberwolves in general are only going to become better this year. They were 46-36 and 36 this past season. And they only have two playoff appearances since 2004. Two in the last seven years. They made it last season in the playoffs, but ended up losing in six games to the Memphis Grizzlies. Which was their only second time to the playoffs in 18 seasons. They haven't won a playoff series since 2004. This Minnesota Timberwolves team is going all out. They want to win. They want to turn this franchise around. I completely respect it. Two playoff series in 18 seasons. Absolutely ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. So I'm proud of this team for going all out. And if you look at it, on the other side, the Utah Jazz, after making the playoffs six straight seasons, they're in for a deep rebuild. They traded Royce O'Neal, a forward to the uh, Brooklyn Nets, for a 2023 first-round pick. They fired longtime coach Quinn Snyder after eight seasons. He had a 585 winning percentage with them in his eight years. And then they hired Celtics assistant coach Will Hardy, which I mentioned in my last episode, now the youngest NBA coach in the NBA. I would not be surprised if Donovan Mitchell would be traded next. I don't know if they would want to do that, but if they're in for a deep rebuild, I don't know if he's going to want to be a part of that, especially if it's going to be three or four years. He's in his prime right now, or just about getting to his prime. He's not going to want to sit around there while they're waiting for, you know, five or six draft picks in the next few years from Minnesota. So now I'm going to switch gears completely to the Red Sox. The Sox won their July 4th contest against the Rays, 4 to nothing. Sox came off a tough weekend series against the Cubs, then also last season midweek uh, against the Toronto Blue Jays in Toronto. Uh, so getting a 4 nothing win yesterday was huge. Uh, Trevor Story hit his 13th home run of the season in the fourth inning. Rafael Devers was 2-4 for four with an RBI and a run scored. J.D. Martinez was 1-4 for four with a run scored. But I think the biggest storyline of this game is Sox rookie pitcher Cutter Crawford. He had a tremendous game in relief of Austin Davis, who was the Sox opener for this game. Crawford pitched 5.1 innings, giving up just two hits, issuing just one walk, and striking out eight, and allowing no runs. He was absolutely electric out of the bullpen. And imagine if he keeps doing that. Imagine he gets another opportunity and does that again. How much better this Sox... Pitching staff becomes 
when you have a guy like Kyle Crawford, who they didn't really have high expectations for this upcoming season, imagine he contributes and it does that again. Could be a huge addition to this to this Red Sox bullpen. John Schreiber, speaking of the bullpen, picked up his third save. Lowed his season ERA to .66. Uh, in the process of doing that, which is third best among relievers in baseball uh, this season. So he's had a terrific season for the Red Sox out of the bullpen. One of the only bright spots, consistent bright spots, that is. None of the Red Sox have had their streaks of pitches being really good out of the bullpen and struggling. But he's been playing very well all season. And he should be an all-star. I don't know how he can't be. But I know it's really a popularity contest of how these guys are picked. So I guess you never know. Heading into Monday's game against Tampa Bay. So yesterday's contest against the Rays. J.D. Martinez's last 29 games it was abysmal at the plate. From May 30th to July 3rd, he was 24-114 with a 211 batting average, a 646 OPS, 3 home runs, 10 RBIs, and 31 strikeouts. In his last 13 games heading into yesterday's game against the Rays, he was 7-52 with a 135 batting average, a 361 OPS, no home runs, 5 RBIs, and a 207 on-base percentage. And I'm telling you these statistics of heading into the Rays game on Monday because I gathered a ton of these stats before I recorded this episode and wasn't able to record this on Monday. I was hoping to record this yesterday and talk about the Red Sox and all the statistics heading into uh, yesterday's game with the Rays, but I ended up not getting to it, so that's why I'm doing it today uh, and saying all the statistics of heading into yesterday's game. Uh, so to continue, as I said, his last 13 games hit 135. That's J.D. Martinez. His last home run was June 14th. And then you look at Xander Bogats, another guy who's been struggling at the plate. His last 12 games heading into yesterday's contest against the Tampa Bay Rays, hitting 186, 8 for 43 from the plate, with a 536 OPS, no home runs, no RBIs, and 11 strikeouts. The last time Xander Bogats drove a run in, guess it, June 16th, over two weeks ago, two and a half weeks ago now. His last home run was June 3rd, a full month ago. His previous one, his previous home run before the June 3rd one was May 27th. Is he hurt? I mean, who knows? That could be the reason he's not playing up to the to the level of talent that we know Zinda Bogats can play. He got the day off yesterday, so there's a potential uh, chance he is hurt. I know he's been battling wrist injuries the past few years, so maybe he is hurt. And that's the reason he's not playing as well as he usually does. And then now moving on to Rafael Devis. No RBIs in his last six games heading into Monday's game against the Rays. Hitting 222 with a 572 OPS over that stretch. He's 6 for 27 in those six games heading into yesterday's game. Seven strikeouts to two walks. So he's not as patient at the plate as he usually is. Two walks and 27 at bats compared to seven strikeouts. Usually a lot better than that. And Xander Bogots in his last six games. Four for 22, 182 batting average, 535 OPS, four strikeouts to four walks. Even strikeouts to walks. And he's usually a lot more patient at the plate too. He's one of the best two strike hitters in all of baseball. JD's last five games, he got Sunday off. The last game against the Chicago Cubs in that series, he got that day off. His last five games, JD Martinez is hitting .048, batting average, 1 for 21 at the plate, a 139 OPS, 10 strikeouts, 0 walks. Yet, if you look at it, that's another guy, JD Martinez, who's usually a lot more patient at the plate, 10 strikeouts to no walks over his last five games. Xander Bogots, 4 strikeouts to 4 walks over his last 6 games. Rafael Devis, seven strikeouts to two walks in his last six games. So that's three guys that are usually a little bit more patient at the plate or a lot more patient at the plate, depending on who you're looking at, that are not having the same results at the plate. They're usually a lot more patient. 
And as a result, since they're not being patient, the result is they're not hitting as well as they usually do. They're struggling. Speaking of one guy, though, that actually has been great at the play for the Red Sox over his last 13 games heading into yesterday, Alex Verdugo has a 13-game hitting streak in his last 13 games, 19-52 at the plate with a 365 batting average, two home runs, 10 RBIs, a 970 OPS, a 431 on base percentage, uh, and just actually extended his 13-game hitting streak to 14 games yesterday. He's been the only player for the Red Sox who's been consistent at the plate over the last 14 games. And although we didn't end up winning a lot of those Cubs games, he was a big reason we were scoring runs. He was great. Especially also in the Toronto series. Verdugo was great in that too. Two series the Red Sox completely struggled in. Alex Verdugo was very good. The Toronto series, speaking of that, was an absolute mess for the Red Sox. J.D. Martinez was 0-13 in the series with one RBI, a run scored, six strikeouts to no walks, and a 0.71 OPS. 0.71 OPS. 0.071 OPS for J.D. Martinez, which is abysmal. Then Rafael Devis, 2 for 12 of the series with a 167 batting average, one run scored, no RBIs, two walks, and two strikeouts. So no RBIs by Devis, one RBI by J.D. Martinez, and then you look at Xander Bogats, no RBIs as well in that series. 3 for 12 with a 250 batting average, two strikeout, two walks to four strikeouts, three runs scored. The Red Sox, three sluggers, their three best players, J.D. Martinez, Rafael Devis, and Xander Bogats, in that Toronto series, were combined 5 for 37 with a 135 batting average, 12 strikeouts to 4 walks, 1 RBI, and 5 runs scored. You need to be better. You need your three best players to be better than that. Then you look at the Cubs series. Game 1 Friday afternoon, the Sox are 4 to nothing after 2 innings. Everything started off great. Jaron Duran, his first career home run was on the first pitch of the game. Sox up one nothing. Then JBJ, Jackie Bradley Jr. comes up in the second inning. Bases clearing, double, three-run score uh, with the bases loaded. He ends a 0 for 24 streak. Three RBIs in that play. Three runs batted in. Huge for Jackie Bradley. J.D. Martinez and DeBoe got to Devis, though, in that game. Combined 3 of 13 with three strikeouts. And then also, another bad part of that game, Rich Hill injured his knee. Even though the Red Sox started so hot everything was going so well, being up 4 to nothing, and Jaron Durant hitting his first career home run, and JBJ playing so well and having a bases-clearing double. Things just went downhill for the Red Sox. They end up losing that game catastrophically, as they typically do with their bullpen. Rich Hill get, you know, goes out injured. He actually had a ton of walks in that game. Uh, walked three of the last four batters he faced. Big reason he came out of that game. Sox end up losing Friday night. Then you look at Saturday night. The issue with that game was the Red Sox with runners in scoring position were one for seven. So they couldn't get guys across the plate with runners on second or third. J.D. Martinez was 0 for 4 in that game, two two strikeouts uh, in those four at-bats. Devers was 1 for 4 with two strikeouts. Xander Bogats 0 for 3 with a walk. A combined between those three sluggers, 1 for 11, two strikeouts, and one walk. If those three guys choose the same game to not show up in, the Red Sox aren't going to win any games. If all three of them are having bad games in the same night or bad series, the Red Sox are going to struggle. And that's what you saw in the Toronto series, and that's what you saw in the Cubs series. Sunday afternoon, the Red Sox ended up winning, which was a huge uh, relief. Uh, the Sox were 2 for 19, though, with the runners in scoring position, which is a 105 batting average. Devins recovered a little bit. Uh, he was 2 of 6 with two strikeouts. Bogots, another tough game, 0 for 3 uh, with a walk. J.D. Martinez sat out. Uh, so Bogots, Devins, Martinez in this last game combined 2 for 9, two strikeouts and a walk. Bogots ended up actually leaving the game, uh, had a lacerated knee, needed seven stitches after he was clipped uh, by Wilson Couture, trying to steal second base. Um, 
But if you look at it, the big three in the in the Cubs series, so I already said what they did in the Toronto series, they struggled. But in the Cubs series, things weren't better. The big three combined in the Cubs series was 6 for 33 with a 181 batting average, two walks to seven strikeouts, no RBIs, no runs scored. In their last six games between Toronto and Chicago, which I'm not going to talk about Monday's game against Tampa Bay since I crunched all these stats before Monday's game, since I really wanted to talk about this yesterday, uh, you know, in the morning, but since it was July 4th, it's just tough to find the time. In the Toronto and Chicago series, in, the, in those six games combined, they were 11 for 70 with a 157 batting average, 19 strikeouts to six walks, one RBI, and five runs scored. For comparison, if you want to really see how bad they were, Jackie Bradley Jr. has been struggling heavily at the plate over the last two weeks. Had three RBIs in that game, Friday game against the Cubs. He has three RBIs in his last six games. Devis, Bogats, and Martinez, one RBI in their last six games. Jackie Bradley Jr. has three. They have one combined between the three of those guys. And it's not just those three guys struggling. Trevor Story was struggling too in the Cubs series. One for nine with four strikeouts, no walks, a 111 batting average, no RBIs, and two runs scored. Story in his last six games between the Toronto series and the Cubs series, two for 16 with a 125 batting average, 479 OPS, one home run, two runs batted in, eight strikeouts to one walk, and three runs scored. So you have four best offensive players, four guys who are being paid the most money, Xander Bogats, Rafael Devis, J.D. Martinez, and Trevor Story, were awful in the last two series against Toronto and Chicago. Trevor Story in his last six games, two for 16 with a 125 batting average, eight strikeouts to one walk. Then you look at Xander Bogats, J.D. Martinez, and Rafael Devis, combined 11 for 70, 157 batting average, 19 strikeouts to six walks, one RBI and five runs scored in their last six games. That's abysmal. You need them to be better. You need those four guys to be better, especially with how much money they're all making. All making a ton. I know Xander Bogats and J.D. Martinez and Trevor Story actually you know, have bigger contracts. Uh, so they really you know, have had multi-year deals. Raphael Devis ha- doesn't have that yet. But he's one of your best players. One of your four best players, he needs to be better. He's going to be getting a ton of money this upcoming offseason, wherever he's paid. Whenever Raphael Devis is paid, he's going to make it 30-plus a year. So I'm considering him a heavily paid player because that's how good he is. Anyways, moving on now, Jaron Duran has been unreal at the leadoff spot for the Red Sox. I'm hoping he stays at center field even when Kike Hernandez comes back from the I.L., uh, who you guys have known. Uh, I'm not too big of a Kike fan. He's been abysmal at the plate. Uh, tough to watch this whole season. Um, but if you look at it, Jaron Duran has been a lot better um, at the leadoff spot. In his last five games heading into Monday's contest, he's 11 for 24 with a 458 batting average, a 1208 OPS, one home run, four RBIs, two walks, two strikeouts, two stolen bases, and a five-game hitting streak in his last five games. He missed the Toronto series because he didn't have the vaccine, but uh, he just said in an interview a couple days ago that he will be getting it, so he should be ready to play in Toronto September. So he missed the Toronto series. He would have been a big help. But his last five games, he's hitting 458 with a 1208 OPS, a home run, four RBIs, and two stolen bases with a five-game hitting streak. His ability to go from first to third on a single is a legitimate weapon, a weapon this Red Sox team needed. They didn't really have much speed. Besides Trevor Story having 10 stolen bases, the Red Sox don't really have many stolen base threats. And now you have another one, Jaron Duran. He has a hit in 14 of 16 games, and the Red Sox are 11-5 and five in games he plays. He strikes out 19.6% of the time, 13 strikeouts and 66 at-bats. But if you look at last year, he's improved heavily. Last year's strikeouts were his issue. 
40 strikeouts and 107 at-bats, which is 37.3% of the time he struck out. So he cut it in half completely, 37% to 19%. 37% strikeout percentage last year per at-bat, and now a 19% strikeout percentage this season. Cut it in half completely. Jeremy Durant has been an improvement of the plate heavily, and the Red Sox team really needed him to be. Now, if you look at it, Kike Hernandez and Jaron Durant compared, as I just said, I think that if you, if you think about it, I think Jaron Durant should be the starting uh, center fielder and the leadoff hitter when Kike Hernandez comes back. I think he's the better player. But if you look at it, Kike Hernandez in 37 games as a leadoff hitter, 34 of 163 with a 208 batting average, 24 runs scored, 17 RBIs, 27 strikeouts. Now you look at Jaron Durant, 16 games heading into yesterday's matchup with Tampa Bay, hitting 333 with a 919 OPS. Four stolen bases, six RBIs, two triples, six doubles, and ten runs scored. I don't think it's a comparison. I think Jaron Durant is the better player. I think the Red Sox are a better team with Jaron Durant as a leadoff hitter. And even if Kike Hernandez comes back, Jaron Durant should still be the leadoff hitter. He's earned that right. He's been playing so well as of late. I know the more games he plays, I'm sure his batting average and his OPS and, and, and his slugging percentage will all go down. Because naturally, the more games you play, you're not going to stay that high the whole season. But I think he is the better player. I think he's better than Kiki Hernandez. Like the Red Sox are the better team. And I think he's a lot more valuable on, in the lineup and on the field than Kiki Hernandez. Kiki Hernandez might be a better defender, but Jaron Duran, his defense isn't that bad. But you have to say, uh, we can't put him in the lineup because he's not, he's not that good a defender. He's gotten a lot better, too, defensively this past year. His speed is, is nuts. He's catching bloopers that Kiki Hernandez wouldn't catch. Who knows if J, JBJ would catch some of them. He's been a great improvement in this Red Sox lineup, and I'm excited to see... Him hopefully be the leadoff hitter for the rest of the season. But obviously, uh, only time will tell there. So now to finish off this episode, I'm going to give an injury update uh, for the Red Sox. Chris Sale in his last rehab stuff of Portland went four innings, allowed four hits, one earned run, no walks, seven strikeouts, 52 pitches in those four innings with 36 strikes. Uh, his fastball hung around 96 miles per hour, so it's great to see him get his velocity back. And he's supposed to be starting tomorrow for the Worcester Red Sox. Um, it could be back in the Red Sox rotation as early as next week, according to John Morosi via Alex Cora. Uh, so that's a huge addition to that Red Sox pitching staff. Uh, we'll see how he does tomorrow with the Worcester Red Sox. I'll keep you guys updated there. And then Garrett Whitlock and Nate Evaldi. Garrett Whitlock was on the IL with the right hip inflammation, and then Nate Evaldi, low back inflammation. Uh, both are placed in the IL on June 9th. Uh, Whitlock is supposedly going to return to the bullpen when he is back healthy, according to Alex Cora. So the Red Sox bullpen immediately becomes better than it was now with him back in the bullpen. Um, and obviously the starting rotation is a lot better with Nate Evaldi in it. He's been the Red Sox ace for the last few seasons, uh, especially with Chris Sale being out uh, for the majority of the last two or three years now. Um, both guys are scheduled for bullpens today. So hopefully they go, uh, they do well and it goes well and they progress um, and, and are able to be back in the Red Sox pitching staff uh, over the next week or two. Um, Kiki Hernandez has been progressing well um, with his right hip uh, flexor strain. He could do a rehab assignment over the weekend. Uh, Cora said, who knows, could be back with the Red Sox uh, within the next week, maybe is my best estimate. Um, Rich Hill will be getting an MRI in his knee. Uh, he had a knee sprain in that Friday game against the Cubs, which I was just talking about. Um, he's now wearing a brace. Uh, the 42-year-old pitcher um, has had a great season the Red Sox, despite being 42. Um, he's had a decent year for the Sox, 4-4 four four record with a 4-2 ERA. The win thing for him has been how well he performed at Fenway versus how well he performed away from Fenway. He was awful at Fenway, but then away from Fenway was great. At Fenway this season, 1-3 record, 6-4-9 ERA and 6 starts, allowing 6 home runs, 33 hits, and 19 earned runs in 26.1 innings. He had an 8.5 strikeout per 9 inning rate. 
Then you look at the road. 3-1 and one with a 2.84 ERA and 9 starts. Two home runs allowed, 14 earned runs, 35 hits, and 44.1 innings pitched. And to go along with that, he's a 6.7 strikeout per 9 inning rate, which he does a lot better at Fenway strikeouts-wise with an 8.5 strikeout uh, rate per 9 innings compared to 6.7 on the road. But on the road, he's been a lot better. Along with 14 earned runs and 9 starts and 44.1 innings pitched, then you look at just in 26.1 innings at Fenway, he's allowed 19 earned runs, so five more earned runs in 20 less innings. So 20 more innings he's pitched on the road, he's allowed five less runs. And has allowed just two more hits in those extra 18 innings. He's been a lot better on the road for the Red Sox, and uh, hopefully progresses well and gets back soon since the Red Sox really need him, uh, especially when he's on the road. He's been pitching great. But even overall, the whole season, 4-4 four four, uh, with a 4-2 ERA, you'll take for a 42-year-old pitcher um, who should be the 4-5 on your staff when everyone's healthy. Uh, and who knows, maybe he'll be in the bullpen when he comes back, especially if he comes back around the time Chris Seale gets back and Paxton gets back, he could end up being in the bullpen. And then your bullpen's better than it is now. Um, so the Red Sox really have an interesting uh, future now with Chris Seale coming back and Paxton coming back soon. Uh, and then also Whitlock coming back. Who knows what the bullpen's going to look like. Anyways, I just want to finish up this episode of the Baltimore Orioles. Uh, I talked a few times now uh, in the last few weeks about how well they've been playing and how they've been turning their franchise around. And one thing I just found out was that this June, so the June 2022, uh, part of the 2022 season, was the first winning month that the Baltimore Orioles have had since August of 2017. Very interesting. They really turned it around. They've had only one winning month now since August of 2017, and it was in June of 2022. So if that doesn't show you this Baltimore Orioles team is turning things around, I don't know what will. And I pointed them out a few episodes ago for how well they've been playing and how well they've been turning their season around. And how the franchise is turning a corner. The Baltimore Orioles are legitimately on the rise. There's no other way to say it. If you don't think so, I don't know what will convince you otherwise. You should just watch their games. They're a lot better than they were last year, two years ago, three years ago. This team's getting better, and they're starting to gel. And Jared Karabas just pointed out that since June 11th, the Orioles are 13-9. and Only the Astros, Red Sox, and Yankees have better records in the American League over that stretch. The Orioles are 5-12, and which he pointed out. The Orioles are 5-12 and against Oakland and the Yankees this season, but have a 32-32 and record, so a 500 record, against all other major league ball clubs. Hopefully they continue to play better baseball and continue to rise. Um, I've always been uh, a fan of Cedric Mullins and Trey Mancini, so seeing the Orioles play better as a team as a whole uh, is something that's very promising, and hopefully they continue uh, to play good baseball. Since baseball, the American League East, is only better when the Orioles are better. Since they have four legitimate playoff teams, and you have the Orioles that are just about six games out of the wildcard spot, you have five teams that could be competing for three playoff spots, three wildcards. So the Yankees will probably end up winning the American League East, then there will be three teams, which could be the Rays, Red Sox, and Blue Jays, get the three wildcard spots. But who knows? The Orioles are only six games out, and there's a lot of baseball left. Uh, which might sound crazy, but only being six games out compared to what they've been typically out, 25-plus games out at this point in the season, uh, it's very interesting. So hopefully they continue to play good baseball. Anyways, thank you guys so much for listening. This concludes my episode. I'm going to be back on uh, hopefully tomorrow to talk about the NBA free agency frenzy and break down a lot of the big deals. I'll even talk about the Nathan's hot dog eating contest and Joey Chestnut winning his 15th title. Um, and then hopefully I'll break down uh, some more stuff about the Red Sox. and O'Brien Bayo will be making his Major League debut uh, tomorrow night. So hopefully in my episode tomorrow I'll be previewing that. Um, and I'll even talk more about 
the Red Sox, how they've been playing uh, with Chris Seale obviously making uh, another rehab uh, start tomorrow um, in Worcester. And then also uh, Brian Bayo's Red Sox uh, Major League debut, uh, two big events there. And then I'll even talk about Pavetta and how he performs in tonight's game against Tampa Bay. Um, but anyways, thank you guys so much for listening. I truly appreciate it. Hope you guys have a good night. Stay safe and stay well. Thank you.